hello and welcome back to In The Growth Space. This is the show for business owners and leaders who have a thirst for growth. My name is David McLennan, and I really appreciate you listening in. Now, if this is your first time listening, I just want to say welcome, and, and I'm really grateful that you're here. Uh, this podcast is all about growth. It's, it's about business growth, it's about team growth, and it's about personal growth. And today, I have on the podcast a CEO that you're just going to be blown away by. I am really grateful for this conversation. It's really one of my favorite conversations and one that I know you're going to want to share. So as you're going through and listening to this episode, I just want to encourage you to, to whoever comes up in your mind, pause the podcast text it to them, text them the link to it, share this podcast. This is going to be one of those podcasts that it just so aligns with my vision and my mission and of course my values because servant leadership is really everything that I'm about. And, and so uh, let me just introduce to you who I have on the show today. So today I have Joel Manby on the podcast. Now, Joel is a 25-year CEO. Uh, he's been a CEO of major corporations in a number of different industries, and he assists CEOs and brands in, in transforming their organization's business performance and culture through a set of proven processes and tools. Previously, Joel has been the president and CEO and director of SeaWorld Parks and Entertainment, uh, he stepped in when SeaWorld was mired in a brand crisis, which caused sales and profits to plummet. Joel reset SeaWorld's vision and his and their guest experience, and and turned around sales and cash flow while improving the culture, the employee engagement, and customer satisfaction scores. And for over a decade, he served as president and CEO of Hershen Family Enterprises, which operated internationally respected brands such as Harlem Globetrotters, Dolly Parton's Dollywood Parks and Resorts. And during this time, he developed the seven behaviors of the verb love, which defined Hershen's caring culture, and it inspired his book, Love Works. Prior to Hershen, Joel spent 20 years in the auto industry, and he served as CEO of Saab Automobile during Saab's U.S. turnaround. Now, during his tenure, sales increased nearly 70%, and Saab rose from 30th to 5th in the auto industry in dealer and customer satisfaction. So Joel authored the book called Love Works, Seven Timeless Principles for Effective Leaders, and we talk about that in today's podcast, and it, it details how to integrate love, the verb, into the leadership ethos and philosophy of any organization. This servant leadership approach has been systematically proven to transform organizations through lower turnover, higher employee engagement, more satisfied customers, and a stronger profit margin. So LoveWorks has sold over 100,000 copies and has been re-released in an expanded and updated version. So I am so excited to have Joel on this, on this uh, show today. Let's get into my conversation with Joel Manby right now. Well, hey, Joel, welcome to In the Growth Space. I've been really anticipating this conversation for a long time, and I'm really so grateful that you're here and, and grateful to be able to share you with the audience. Well, thanks, David. I'm excited to be here. I, I love your podcast, love what you're doing. So it was exciting for me to be here. 
That's so great. So you've had an amazing growth journey, and it's really one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on and share your story. So take us back and like, how did you start out in leadership and what were some of your formative years? Sure. I would say I've actually always been a leader. You know, there's that make versus buy decision. Are you born a leader or can you become one? Whether it was sports teams growing up, I always kind of take, took the lead in or was captain of the sports team. So I would say in a lot of ways, David, I've always been a leader, Mm. but I also never set out to be a CEO or to be at the top of the organization. I really just set out to do the very, very best I could. And I thought until I was a senior in college that I was going to be a pro baseball player. I literally was trying to, I was trying to get drafted and and, uh, made it it as far as a tryout camp, but I never, I never got drafted. So it was pretty late where I decided, okay, I'm going to go to business school and got an MBA. And then when I got out of graduate school, I went right into General Motors in the Saturn, which was uh, a lot of people don't remember Saturn, but it was a huge brand at the time and really revolutionized the way cars were sold. But I think my very big break professionally came early 30s. I'd worked my way up at General Motors and was senior at Saturn, one of the top five. But because Saturn had a marginal car, but incredible distribution and incredible marketing and, and success in that area. Saab, which was a division of General Motors, they had an incredible car, but really lousy marketing, really lousy distribution. <laughs> so they yeah. specifically wanted a Saturn person to come into Saab. So at 34, mm-hmm. I was CEO of Saab North America, which was very young within the wow. General Motors system, but that was my big quote unquote break. And we had a good turnaround at Saab. And then I was recruited away to be the CEO of an Amazon startup, actually, in, in Silicon Valley. And Jeff Bezos was on our board for the early part. We sold cars through Amazon on the internet. A lot of people don't remember that. But there was oh about gosh, a year. Yeah, but then we got caught up in the, the dot-com implosion. But all that 20 years of my auto career was what I would call the non-servant leadership period. It was very, the auto industry was very autocratic. It was very fear-based. It did not bring out the best in people. It did not bring out creativity and innovation. And I'm just a huge believer in uh, being a more caring, servant leadership kind of organization. But I wasn't that way early in my career. And when the dot-com uh, which was called Greenlight, when that imploded and we, we were forced to sell it, basically, I was already on the board of Hershey Entertainment, which was a large privately held entertainment company, a lot of theme parks. And the founder and the chairman of the board asked me to be the CEO out of nowhere, it, which wow. was just an incredible, it was a miracle. It, it was a God thing for me. Yeah. I didn't plan on it. Didn't, it wasn't part of my vernacular, <laughs> but the reason I bring that all that transition of going from autos to theme parks is when you talk in your podcast about huge growth periods yeah. and where growth is really accelerated. For me, there was there was two pronged major growth spurts in what I just said. One mm-hmm. is going from leading as an expert in the auto industry. I started at the ground up and I worked all the positions, retail, manufacturing, and I became the head of a division. But I led from expertise. I led from a position of uh, kind of thinking I knew it all, even though I didn't. But when I went to theme parks, I was forced, David, to absolutely learn a Socratic 
form of leadership, not yeah. autocratic. And, and I had to learn to ask amazingly good questions by insight and research and data. And what I found, which is intuitive, but a lot of your listeners you know, may have to learn this their own way, is okay. that when you do that and you are truly Socratic and you truly ask your folks to make the decisions and make the recommendations and do the hard work themselves, is it makes them better, you attract better people, and you mm. keep better people. So the next 20 years of my career between being at Hershend and then being CEO of SeaWorld, which was a huge, massive brand turnaround, yeah. uh, I feel like I was a much better leader mm. being uh, ba basically a Socratic form of leadership than autocratic. And then yeah. I said there were two big learning spurts. One was that, but the other was the concept of servant leadership. Mm. And the fact that when I, when I was at Hershend, I learned in a nutshell the difference between be goals and do goals. Yeah. Do goals, all, all organizations have, all leaders have to hit the numbers. We have to hit the sales goals, the targets, the margins, whatever. Mm -hmm. But most organizations, most people don't focus on the B goals, which is what kind of leader do we want our leaders to be within the organization? Yeah. And that is kind of from joining Hershen for the next 20 years of my career began this incredible learning experience of the value of servant leadership mm -hmm. and how it definitely turns around the financial results of any organization. So those are kind of the two main growth spurts that we can dive into either one of them yeah. as you care to. Yeah, I love that. And I love what you said about um, how that servant leadership and that Socratic type of leadership helps to empower our people and it draws people to us and you, and people want to work for leaders like that. And That's of course, right. then that impacts our bottom line. And I, I would love to hear like, what was that transition like for you going from like, how did it feel from being a, I'm going to tell you how to do this. And I know it all to, I need to ask better questions and I need to ask good questions because I think that that's a real, I mean, I know it's something that I work with my emerging leaders all the time about asking better questions. And I, so I guess, you know, to talk, talk a little bit about that. How was that transition? It's, it wasn't easy and it, it didn't feel natural at first because I think most people like to naturally lead as, as, as an expert or we feel more confident by being in control. We think we're in control. <laughs> yeah, right. we're, really, we're really not. Really not yeah. we, we learn that as we, as we get more gray hair, we, right. we're, we're in control of very little. But <laughs> there was a, a mindset change for me that it wasn't about having to have the right answers or it wasn't about that it was all on my shoulders. It was kind of a relinquishing of power and stress to say, my job is to make sure I'm developing amazing people around me so that we can scale this organization. And my goal isn't to be right. My goal is to make sure we get to the right answer and challenge, 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 because I'm thinking I'm trying to make them a better leader. I'm not trying to be right. I'm not trying to keep control. My mind shift change was to, I'm making them a better person. So every time I'm trying to make a decision in a room, mm -hmm. we're trying to get the best decision and have those leaders be stronger leaders. Uh, and I'll just give you one example for, yeah. for your listeners. It's a great, and this was Jack. Jack Hershen really taught me this. I think in my old form of leadership, like we had a really difficult issue. We had to decide whether to close a theme park or not that wasn't making money. In the past, I kind of would have gone in with my mindset 
and tried to sell everybody on what I thought we should do autocratically. In this case, we went around the room. I set up what the issue was and went around the room. It started with a lower level employee first and moving my way up the pay scale yeah. to hear everybody's opinion so that you got the truth and not you know, the politically correct answer. But then more importantly, once we made a decision based on everybody's input, and I still made the call. I still made the decision. I went back around the room at Jack's training, Jack's request, and communicated to everybody why we made the decision we did and made sure they felt heard. Mm. And it was that mentality of making sure people feel heard, but we're going to make the best decision possible. It's just an example of trying to transition to that type of leadership. Yeah, that's a great example. And I think that too often leaders don't understand that we need to allow people to be heard so that we can get the commitment. They may not necessarily agree with our decision, no. but we have to make a decision based on all of the inputs that we've heard. But if they are heard, then they can commit. They can at least say, okay, he took it under consideration. I understand where we're going and I'm on board kind of a thing, no, right? No, exactly right. Exactly yeah, right. Yeah. You know, in, in your book, Love Works, first of all, I just, I have to say, I wrote a great book. There's so many good things in there. I've, I've got it highlighted. I've, I've, I've got it underlined. I've <laughs> got, I, yeah, I got all kinds of, you know, notes. Such a great book. Like for me, I wish more CEOs would understand that their people are what drive the business, the profits. And, and so I know there was in the front, Jack Hirschen wrote the, the forward and he said, I'm going to quote here. It says, wise leaders manage the tension between corporate values and corporate profits. He also said that doing the right thing in business doesn't have to come at the expense of the bottom line. And I mean, you proved that. I mean, you more than doubled the EBITDA at Hershend and you didn't sacrifice those company values. So I guess, how did you manage that tension? And, and does there have to be a tension? Yeah, there is a tension to a degree. And let me, let me just to talk through how we looked at it. And then I'll answer your question. There is a, a natural tension between doing what the employees want, think of three intersecting circles, what the employees want, what the guests or the customer want, mm -hmm. and then what the CFOs or the owners want, which is typically more financial return. Mm -hmm. And the intersection of those three is the art of leadership. Mm -hmm. Really any, I hate to say it this way, but any fool can go into a situation and improve one of those circles. You give the employees everything they want, more money, more raises, more time off, that can bankrupt a company just, mm -hmm. just like giving the customer everything they want, which is free product perhaps, or giving the financials, what the CFOs, what they want, you know, better margins or better cash flow. The art of leadership is balancing those three. Yeah. So from that standpoint, there is a natural tension. However, I will say there really shouldn't be a tension between doing what is right and best for your employees' development and the profitability of the firm. So, so many times we think of financial results as we have to absolutely maximize them to every extent possible for the sake of the owner shareholder. I would claim that the true great owner shareholders look at the balance of all three of those circles. They want great financial results, but they also know that that will be short term if we don't have high engagement scores, high employee satisfaction, as well as, I guess, in customer satisfaction. You have to have all three of those headed in the right direction. And if as long as people have a medium to long-term view, meaning three to five years, it's, it, it all should move in a positive direction and, and, and not have that natural tension. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think that is such a powerful message. And I think that it's one that a lot of uh, CEOs today, I think, you know, quite frankly, I don't think they have that yet. It's one of the missions that I have is to, to be able to help organizations look at having all of those things moving in the right direction and the, the people, profits and, and the culture and, and the leadership. You talked earlier about developing other leaders. What did that have to do or how did that impact the organization's growth by really helping those leaders to grow? I'm glad you asked that question, David. Let's go into a little bit about Love Works as a principle because you, you mentioned the book. I will say I never intended to be an author. It was <laughs> what, ha- what happened. It's kind of a funny story. And then I'll answer your question is our organization was featured on Undercover Boss and we followed the NCAA quarterfinals. And, and so there was 20 million or so people watching the program. And I thought what I didn't say when I talked about the 20 years in the autos and the 20 years in theme parks That first 20 years, David, I felt a huge angst in my soul. I knew there had to be a better way to lead, but I never saw it modeled. So, you know, I'm a kid. I grew up poor on a farm. I go to business school. I only kind of know what I had been taught and what I saw. And in the auto industry, I never saw servant leadership or caring leadership. I thought in my soul it should happen. And from a faith perspective, I thought it should happen, but I never saw it. And so it wasn't until I got to Hershen that it was modeled. And Mm. so I just think it's so important that people get a chance to see it modeling because of that angst. And when, when we were on Undercover Boss, we were just inundated with people saying, we want a culture like that. We want leaders like that. And so I realized I wasn't the only one having this angst that there were hundreds of thousands of people out there that also saw this leadership crisis. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote the book, any of your listeners, anyone who feels like we should expect more of leadership, we should be more demanding. Leaders do care about their people and their customers and the profitability and balance all three. The book's written for those people who want to show that to have someone model it and show that it can be done. But to answer your question of how we went about doing it, most organizations define their beagles, in other words, what their values are. And love works is about taking agape love, which is a verb and saying, Mm -hmm. here's how we define how employees are to love each other. And I know, but it's not love the emotion. It's love the verb. It is how we treat people regardless of how we feel about them. And so the the seven words are being patient and kind and trusting and truthful and forgiving and dedicated and unselfish. And there's a lot, if we had time, we don't to unpack all that. But the key point of it is, this is the definition. These seven words were our beagles. This is how we wanted leaders to behave. Mm -hmm. And more importantly, we taught them that we had measurements to reinforce it. So there were Mm -hmm. surveys top up and top down, but people were evaluated on those seven words. And our raises were actually based on, you had to hit your do goal numbers, but you also had to hit your be goal numbers as a servant leader. And if you hit both, you got the raise and people were promoted based Mm. on whether they were hitting not only the do goals and the be goals. So what happens when that vernacular is put in place and people are measured robustly on it, we spent just as much time, David, on the financial results of the organization, or I'm sorry, we spent just as much time on the people results and the guest scores and employee scores as we did the financials. Mm. And I'll tell you, you don't see that in many organizations. And it just is like a flywheel 
where when people understand what the culture is and they they want to be part of it, it is incredibly uh, invigorating for the organization. Yeah, I can imagine. And I, I love that you defined uh, the two, you know, the beagles and the doogles. And, and, and something that you said, I think is really key. And I don't want our listeners to miss it because what you did, what you said is, that you you practiced those behaviors, you talked about them, you taught them, you gave feedback on them, and you evaluated them. And I think that something that is super important, and I'm glad you shared that love is a verb, because it's action. And just because I'm kind doesn't mean I'm not going to be tough, and I'm going to hold people to a high standard. But that's love. That's the verb. That's the beagle, right? Well, it's just like as a parent, you know, do, do we, are we always nice to our kids? No, we have to hold them accountable. They have to be punished, so to speak. I mean, I hate yeah. to use that term, but sure. I, the thing that gets me frustrated <laughs> is that people do say, oh, servant leadership soft or leading with love is soft. Actually, it's extremely difficult. And I've done yeah. it both ways. I have the credibility that I was 20 years CEO in auto industry, cutthroat, autocratic, <laughs> fear-based, and also servant leadership. It's actually harder to be a balanced leader and have to have great employee scores and great guest scores and great financials mm-hmm. than just being measured only on the financials. And you're right. Kindness, that's encouragement, but matched with and kindness is also truthfulness. And yeah. truthfulness means you have the tough conversation. Some mm-hmm. people lose their jobs and, and all those difficult things that go with it. But there's nothing easy about it, but it is extremely rewarding. And I I can tell you definitively for your listeners who may wonder, I've been involved in probably 13, 14 different acquisitions of divisions or integrating new companies that we consistently bought companies that were underperforming financially. They had high turnover, low employee engagement. And almost to a T, David, within three years of putting these processes in place of measuring and reinforcing and promoting based on it and holding people accountable to it, we saw incredible turnarounds, not only in engagement scores, but the financial results of the organization. Mm-hmm. And I know that's intuitive and I know you would expect me to say that, but it, that, and that's not just at Hershen, it was the same thing at SeaWorld. It took three years basically to turn a really, really dysfunctional culture into a, a functional one, but it's because of the focus on the B goals which is, that's what the whole book Love Works is about. And again, it's to give people encouragement that they can lead that way and be financially successful because let's face it, that's part of business. If it's not going to be financially successful, it doesn't have credibility. And I can assure your listeners that it does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love hearing that. I love because there's so, so often I talk to senior leaders that, are hesitant to lead that way because it's their mindset. That's the way they were taught. And I think that, you know, you talked about it already. We've got this crisis in leadership in our companies today. And I think that's where we have to be able to to help our leaders adopt this different mindset. And I think your book does a great job of doing that. And so I want to encourage our listeners to go out and and get the book and, and read it and not just read it, but apply it because there are some really practical things that you can do that you bring out in the book that will help us to lead with love, with, with that action as a, as a verb. And so really appreciative that you wrote this book. Well, thank you. And you, you mentioned that the behaviors and getting real specific on behaviors. I, yeah. I thought I would just give one example of that because you, yeah. you brought it up is it. like, let's say 
patience as a word. It's how to handle difficult situations, stressful, difficult situations. One of the behaviors under patience was praise in public, admonish in private. You know, very simple concept. But look, we've all been admonished publicly, whether it's by our parents or by, (laughs) you know, a boss. And it doesn't feel good. And it, it doesn't help. I mean, there may be a rare occasion where it's justified and necessary, but that's just one example. Or under kindness, one of our definitions was to, to, to write handwritten notes and to praise three times more than you admonish. The brain, according to many, and, and some say it's even five to one ratio, needs those positive reinforcements to balance the withdrawals or we lose confidence and we don't mm. make the best decisions. So those are just two examples within patience and kindness, how we define specifically what we want people to do, and they could be held accountable to doing those things or not. Yeah, yeah, that's a great example. You know, one of the stories that you shared in the book was around a time in the Hershen Enterprise timeline where there were some difficult economic uh, yeah. times and you were you were either going to have to lay off, you had some difficult conversations and some difficult decisions to make. And I thought it was really interesting to see the leaders, their response and what they did and what they proposed. And I wondered if you'd just share a little bit about that, because I think that that speaks to the culture of an organization when, when you've got leaders who are willing to give up their pay or reduce their pay and, and really want the team to benefit and, and really they're all about the team. So would you mind sharing a little bit about that? Uh, that's, I'm happy to. It was 07 and 08 when everything hit the fan and Lehman went out of business and the theme park industry nosedive because it's disposable discretionary discretionary expense, maybe sometimes yeah. disposable. Um, so we, we, we dropped 35%. We had just made three acquisitions. So we had a lot of debt and you know, new debt combined with plunging cash flow created a really difficult situation. So we had very specific cash flow goals we had to meet or we were going to default on our loans, basically. So you talk about it's not, it's, you can't always be nice. We had to hit those goals. So we came up with the number of expense that we had to cut and the capital that we had to cut to get there. But instead of just telling people, are right, you going to lay off 350 people to make this happen? We gave them the figure mm-hmm. and said to our parks, you find the number Mm-hmm. But it's up to you how to find the number. And I also said, by the way, you know, the senior leadership team, the top five people, we're taking 20% pay cuts, but I'm not, I'm not going to dictate what the parks have to do. Well, to your point, the story is the next day, the head of Dollywood, which is Dolly Parton, all of Dolly Parton's uh, enterprises, mm-hmm. and she's our, our partner in those. He called me up on the phone and said, Joel, we decided we'd, we'd have to lay off you know, 200 people, let's say. It was roughly that number. But we're not going to, we're all going to take 20% pay cuts and and we're going to make it so we don't have to lay people off. And it was just such a meaningful moment to me that they took it upon themselves. And yeah, we did set an example, but we didn't tell people they had to do it because it's it's tough to get pay cuts. But the, the fact that they decided to do that on their own and we got through this crisis. Now, I will say at the corporate level, we still had to lay some people off. But another thing for your listeners to hear, the way we differentiated it is we stayed with those people and we helped them get jobs. And within six months, they all had a job because we stayed with them. We even let them look for the job while they're still on their severance and, and still staying with us. So you can handle those difficult situations in a unique way that most companies don't do. 
And I would encourage people to approach it that way. Yeah. You know, just in you sharing that story, I remember you sharing it in the book. It, it reminded me of Bob Chapman and his book, Truly Human Leadership, you know, very similar. And he talks about how we can treat people humanely. We can treat people with care, even when we have to make those difficult decisions and transitions. And I love that you did it that way. And that was just amazing. Well, you know, sometimes, honestly, David, the lawyers will tell you not to do it that way. You have to ask, escort people out the door, let's yeah. say. And I, I would say, what's the risk? Is it IT? Okay, we'll cut off their email so they can't hack our systems. Sure. But they can still stay in our offices and they can still look for a job and they can still say they're employed. Um, it's a lot easier to find a job when you have a job. So right. I, I appreciate it. You asked it earlier. There just doesn't have to be, if, if you look at it as maximizing only the financial gain, perhaps there's a tension. But if you look at it as we're going to get great returns on investment for the shareholders, we're going to have great financial results, but we're also going to have great employee engagement. So, so what if they're paid a little bit more or you have better benefits than everybody else? Those are things you want yeah. to keep turnover from happening. So yeah, um, yeah I appreciate sure. your support on that. Yeah. So let's just turn the corner for just a second here. And like, if you were speaking to another CEO who said, okay, Joel, I get it. I want this too. I really, I want my organization to be like Hershen. I want them or any other organization where people want to come and work for us and we retain the best talent. We want to adopt this model. Where do we start? What's the, like, what's our first step? Yeah. Um, there's really, there's, there's five steps. This is not in the book. This is actually uh, going to be my, my next book. So a little, a little, awesome. Awesome. A little I haven't Insider even gone public with that, oh. but, but, but it's, it is the process for doing so, but in a nutshell, make it short, defining it is the first step. And the book love works is more about the definition of the seven words, which, you know, I'm not saying you have to use those seven words, but something like them. But then the second step is to teach it and meaning teaching it right down to the behavioral level and putting the, the resources in to make sure everyone in your organization knows what that definition is. And then it's, once you teach it, it's measuring it. And I know people, when they hear that, they, what, you're measuring values? Yes, it's, it's subjective. It's not perfect. But we, as I said earlier, people would have a culture score. They would be, yeah. they, they would have a score. How do my people feel about working for me? And how do the leaders feel I'm doing in these seven words of love? And then the fourth one is after obviously measuring it is reviewing it constantly. And as I said earlier, reviewing it just as much as you review the financials. And then the last step is to promote it. Meaning, you know, the kiss of death is when you say, oh, values are important. Values are important. But then the person who is promoted to COO is the person who runs over everybody to get short-term financial results. And you just ruined all credibility. And so I see that over and over again, though, you know, we, people talk about values, but without those five steps that I just went through, it, it won't have any legs and it won't have any foundation. So yeah. that's what I would recommend in that first step of defining it. Yeah. Uh, it has to be cross-functional. It has to have several people involved and it takes time, you know, 90 days yeah. to six months to really, I would say six months to get those values defined. So it's, yeah. As I said, it's the whole thing is kind of a three-year, five-step process, but that would be my recommendation of how to start. You are speaking my language, Joel. I love this so much because in, in the work I do with culture, I take people through a process 
very similar to what you just shared. And that is, yeah, just defining, we have to, if we don't know what we're shooting for and we don't define it, well, we're not going to know if we hit it. So we have to define it first, but then how do we practice it? How do we create rituals in our organization, our cadences and our rhythms to be able to talk about it every chance we get? And so, man, you, you are on this. And hold people accountable to it. Exactly. Right? Yeah. But it, it's, it's, you know, I'm sure you find it, David. It, it starts with the CEO, and it often does. the CEO is blind to the cultural issues or yeah. doesn't really. That's why employee surveys and some kind of feedback mechanism yeah. is so critical um, because they tend to think, at least from what I've seen, most CEOs or most entrepreneurs don't realize they have a culture problem until they right. really look at the numbers, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, so we kind of got a glimpse of what's next for you. Tell us what's the future hold for you? Like, what's your vision of, of helping, you know, people go into helping create love in, in the workplace? I appreciate you asking that. I feel like whatever time I have left on this earth, I really want to focus on teaching and, and promoting servant leadership. I think it's important, mm -hmm. David, not only to maximize business results, but I'm more importantly for our country. I'm, I'm worried yeah. about our country. I, I think capitalism is the only answer, but it, it has to be benevolent capitalism. We yeah. have to care about our workers or other alternative methods will get the light of day that I don't think should. So I think it's that's where I want to focus. Now, um, people can follow me on joelmanby.com. I have blogs and uh, I do speaking based on this. Um, also, they can buy the book on the website and some free resources come with that. But I also just joined forces with John Maxwell, yeah, um, which that. I'm very excited about. And if people go to johnmaxwellacademy.com, which maybe we can put in your show notes. But I put it in there. Yes. There's a, something called Executive Circle that is a mentoring program that I'm involved with through Maxwell to, to help mentor C-suite executives. Kind of a, it's a call it a mini, it's a 12-month and a mini MBA on servant leadership is the way I would describe it. So that's what I'm focused cool. on right now. Oh, that is so, so great, Joel. I'm so excited to uh, have you be affiliated with John Maxwell. He's one of my heroes in leadership and just have it learned so much from him. Matter of fact, one of his books, uh, Intentional uh, Living, was one of the, probably the catalyst for helping me to start my own business. And, that's and great. Yeah, it, it, it's, he, he's just, uh, he's just a gem. So I, he I appreciate him so much. And he's such a great human being. And I'm, I'm honored to be with them. It is exciting for me and hopefully exciting for them. And, you know, they, cause they haven't done as much kind of in the C-suite arena. Um, mm -hmm. And that's, that's my expertise. So I'm excited to just play any part I can. Yeah, that's that's great. Well, I, I can't wait to to see how that progresses, and uh, I know it'll be very valuable and and uh, impactful as well. Any any final thoughts, Joel, that you just want to leave the audience with today that maybe we haven't talked about that would really you know make this episode complete? I think just just encouraging people that servant leadership is the right answer, and that if they have hesitation because they think it's soft. They think it's too difficult or they don't think it's going to work. My message to all of your listeners is it does work. It, it works financially and it works for the betterment of your employees. And I know we've said that, but I just want to reiterate how I want to encourage your listeners to go there and to trust your instincts and to go there. And also just parting word of encouragement. These are extremely difficult times. I, yeah. I'm 62. I've led for 40 plus years and been CEO for 25 of that. This is as difficult as it possibly gets. And COVID is 
exhausting and it's it's uncertain and that creates huge anxiety for all of us and just encourage your listeners to hang in there and we are all in this together and it is not easy and so when when people are down and feeling a little little depressed by all this that's natural but we just have to stay strong Wow. That's uh, great words. And thank you. Thanks for your generosity of time today, Joel. Thank you for sharing with the audience. I love everything that you're about and I wholeheartedly support your book, your work and servant leadership. And so I really appreciate you being here today. Well, thank you, David. Ditto. I support you and I hope we see each other and work together more in the future. Yeah. Likewise. Likewise. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, that was certainly one of my uh, more favorite uh, conversations here on the podcast. I'm super honored and grateful that Joel came on and shared with us uh, his vision of leadership. And it was really interesting to hear him talk about be goals versus do goals and how he articulated that in the company. And there's a couple of things that I just wanted to make sure that you take away from today's conversation. And first and foremost, that defining the company's values and their B goals, um, and then really how those are going to be taught and how they'll be measured is something that I believe that every company needs to do. And really, his book titled Love Works truly does work, and, and, and he's proved it. I mean, he has the financial results to prove it. And, and the other thing that he said that I think is really very important, especially for leaders who may think of love as some kind of a soft thing, you know, what he said is it's it's really harder and it takes more intentionality. So love is a verb and we can see it, we can teach it, we can give feedback on it. And, you know, and honestly, it creates a symphony for the organization that just pays long-term results and is so beautiful. It attracts good people. It reduces our turnover and it helps our bottom line. And the fact that he talked about people and profits not having to be at odds, that that there doesn't have to be this tension, that there can be this this harmony within people and profits and, and our ownership. And so this is such a great lesson. And Joel is all about servant leadership. And, and so I really want to encourage you to go out and, and get his book, get connected with him. We will have all of his handles uh, in the show notes so that you can get connected with Joel. I'm super excited to know that he's now affiliated with John Maxwell and he's creating this academy for CEOs and for senior leadership. It's going to be really impactful and we'll have that uh, in the the show notes as well. And I really would love to hear your feedback. So shoot me a note, send me a note on what your biggest takeaways from this conversation is. And I'd also love to hear who you would love to hear on the podcast who should I talk with? Who do you know that I should know? It's a it's a famous John Maxwell question. Who do you know that I should know? Send me an email, david at davidmcglennon.com and let me know. Give me an introduction if you can. So the next episode is going to be a really cool episode. I have a new friend, uh, Matt Andrews, and he is a an expert in, in real estate investing and also personal growth. He's, he's, he's one of those kinds of people that when you start talking with him, you instantly know you've got a new friend and it's a great one. So you're going to want to subscribe, make sure that you're downloading uh, the next episode. It's going to be a great one. And until next time, stay in that growth space and be well.